we shall not want. You lead us beside the green pastures. You lead us near the still waters and You restore our soul. Lord, we thank You that You guide us in paths of righteousness for Your own name's sake. We praise You because You are our shepherd and we are the people of Your pasture, the sheep of Your hand. Lord, we praise You because You love us and take care of us. God, this world is such an incredible pasture that You made for us. You created this whole world out of nothing. You looked at it and You said it is very good. And Lord, we enjoy the goodness of Your creation every time we walk on a beach or walk through a forest or enjoy the rain outside, Lord, or look up into the stars and see that the heavens declare the glory of God. Lord, we praise You because we ourselves are fearfully and wonderfully made. We look at our bodies and we're amazed at the human body and we know that to think that this was an accident is uh, the most ludicrous uh, leap of faith a person could take. Lord, we are clearly designed by You and Your handiwork. Lord, we praise You because You're such a good God who gives us things all the time. You're constantly providing for us. Lord, right now we are breathing by Your grace. Our families are around us by Your grace and Your goodness. You are such a good shepherd. But Lord, we confess that we are wayward sheep. That all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. All of us, Lord... uh, have not loved You with our whole heart. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourself. We know that the words of the Bible are true, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Even in our most religious moments, Lord, we come so woefully short of honoring and worshiping You the way that You deserve. And so, God, we confess that we are a sinful people who have fallen short of Your glory, that uh, we are people who gossip. We are people who say harsh words to one another. We are people with violent thoughts. We are people who are plagued with greed and um, impropriety, Lord, and impurity, idolatry of every form. And we know, Lord, that none of us is worthy to come into Your kingdom or to gain eternal life. But Jesus, we're here this morning praising You because You are the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Thank You, Jesus, that You are the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And that on that cross... You who are God in human flesh took our sin on Yourself. That while we were still sinners and enemies, You died for us. And so, Lord, we worship You this morning. We are Your people now. Not because we're better than anybody or because we've uh, found some secret enlightenment, but simply because You have saved us by Your power. And so, Lord, we are Your church gathered together from all different parts of the South Shore of Boston here in this building this morning to worship You gathered together with one thing in common. We have the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Lord, we pray that You would make us a holy and godly church. I pray, Lord, that we would have a heart for the world. We do pray for Your kingdom, Jesus, to go to the far ends of the earth. We pray, Lord, for nations all around the world. We pray this morning, Lord, for Cambodia, that Your church would be established there. For Iceland, God, that the Gospel would have great success. Lord, for uh, Mozambique, that the Gospel would be translated and the Bible would be translated into many languages there. Lord, for all the nations of the world, would Your kingdom have success and traction one by one. Lord, we thank You for this Mother's Day and we thank You for mothers in our midst. We thank You for the mothers in our lives, God. We thank You for the gift of family and parents. God, thank You for um, uh, the children of this church and the mothers who are here and are trying to raise their children to honor You and train them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Lord, we do also recognize that this is a sinful and broken world and that for many of us, thoughts of our own mothers are not happy thoughts. 
They're not positive thoughts, but many of us, Lord, had mothers who failed us in profoundly deep ways. And so, Lord, on this Mother's Day, I pray for healing for Your people and the hurts that we have. God, I pray for those women here who have an urge inside them that is so strong to be a mother, but for whatever reason, in Your mysterious providence, You have not allowed them to become pregnant and have children. And so, Lord, I pray Your special blessing on them today that they might find You, Jesus, to be their all in all. That You might fulfill and fill up those uh, secret places in their heart that are hurting and are empty. God, we thank You now for Your Word that we're about to study. And we pray that as we open up the Bible, You would speak to us. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, instructing, and training in righteousness, so that we, Your people, can be thoroughly equipped to do every good work You call us to do. And so, Lord, as we open Your Word now, we pray, speak to our hearts. The last thing we want to do is just go to church to go through motions of worship and to be uh, professing you on the outside but have nothing going on in our hearts. We want to be real Christians, not hypocrites. And so, Lord, we pray that as we open your word, you would speak into the secret places of our heart that no one else knows, but that you can see as plain as day. So, Lord, speak to us now through your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, today we continue our study of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 10. Any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can go to children's church. Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10? Uh, That's on page 1027. If you're using a pew Bible and you're a little rusty, page 1027. Luke chapter 10. And a happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. In my sublime wisdom, I decided last week to have a Mother's Day cookout today. <clears throat> so, it's probably my fault that it's raining the way it is. Luke chapter 10. Today we're going to study verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 10, but uh, I'm gonna, I'd like to read a little more than that. I'd like to actually read the first uh, 25 verses or so, just to set the whole story up, because we're studying the first part today of a longer story about Jesus sending out disciples to proclaim the good news. So even though we're studying just the first few verses, I want to kind of put the whole thing in context for you. So it's an interesting story. This is the story in the Gospels of the sending out of the 72. So let me just read it and you can follow along in your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of Him to every town and place where He was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. Go! I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not, remove, do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. 
I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. You know, there's a uh, common stereotype of Christians, especially of evangelical Christians, I think. And that stereotype is, that, uh, to sort of put it in common language, that Christians are the kind of people who are always trying to shove religion down your throat. <clears throat> it's an interesting stereotype. It, the picture is sort of, of a very dogmatic, closed-minded, uh, preachy person who's always uh, shoving uh, their faith in your face. Their transmitter is very big but their receiver is very small. And they do a lot of talking and they don't do a lot of listening. And if you don't listen, well then, you know, they don't care. They just want someone to listen to them preach away. And, you know, where do we get this stereotype? Why, does, why is that? Maybe you've heard it. I've heard people think of Christians that way. And I suspect part of the reason has to be that, you know, sometimes it's true. <laughs> Haven't you met Christians who are like that? I have. Uh, who are just very uh, abrasive. You know, their, their style is very aggressive and confrontative, and you don't get any sense that they really care about the person to whom they're speaking. Uh, so I think sometimes Christians have uh, brought that on themselves. But my suspicion is that's probably not the main reason for the stereotype, even though there has to be some of that out there. I think the main reason for the stereotype is that our culture has shifted in its understanding of truth. Uh, we've been what many people call uh, become a postmodern culture. And when it comes to truth, that means that we have a view known as relativism. Relativism is the idea that there's no absolute truth. You know, there's nothing that's true for everybody. There's just your personal truth and my personal truth. And your, what's true for you is true, not true for me. And they can be totally opposite, but that's okay in relativism. Because truth and relativism is just kind of a personal opinion or preference or taste or style. Uh, and this, this is certainly true when it comes to matters of belief and religion and theology and God. People believe uh, that 
the truth is just something that's theirs and it's okay if someone believes the opposite thing and they're both true in their own ways. People believe these sort of contradictory things. Uh, and so people reinterpret Jesus under postmodernism. In fact, I've even heard the argument put forth that Jesus would be against evangelism. And this is how the argument goes. It goes like this. Jesus was accepting. Jesus loved people. He embraced people. He reached out to all kinds of people. He was very tolerant. Evangelism is intolerant. Therefore, Jesus would be opposed to evangelism. And so you have kind of a postmodern reworking of who Jesus is. And so these postmodernists would say, hey, uh, Christians, the world would be helped if you would just shut up <laughs> and do more nice things for people. Stop talking and just help people. Uh, and, you know, there might be a little truth to that sometimes. It, what's the point of our words if we're not backing it up with our lives? So what are we to do with all of this? And I think this is a challenging topic for us, how to share our faiths in a postmodern context. And that's why we come to Luke chapter 10, is why I bring this up. Because Luke chapter 10, as we just read, is all about Jesus sending out more disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. He already sent out the 12, if you remember, if you are here a couple months ago, we studied that. Now he's upping the ante. Now he's sending out 72, so he's cranking up the evangelistic efforts, not reining them in. And so as we look at this, uh, it's a good time to ask the question, what did Christ teach? Because our opinions on evangelism, if we truly are Christians, need to be shaped by Christ. Not by our good or bad experiences. And not by um, what the culture says. Because we all know the culture changes every generation or so. And you know, a generation from now, postmodernism will be out and something else will be in. So we can't take our beliefs by sort of tracking the conventional wisdom of the day. We have to look at what Christ said if we truly are Christians. And so we come to Luke chapter 10, and today I just want to look at verses 1 and 2. And the next couple Sundays we're going to kind of meander our way through Luke and pick up some of his themes on this topic of missions, evangelism, sharing the good news. But today I just want to look at this, verse 1 and 2. It says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others, that is 72 others beside the 12 disciples, and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So we have a metaphor here. Jesus is talking about workers and harvest. Obviously not literal. So maybe we should just say what it is. I mean, it's probably obvious. You probably get it already. But you know, for the sake of just belaboring the point and being clear, you know, what's the harvest and what are the workers? What's he talking about? And I think clearly the workers are the disciples who are going out to preach the good news. In fact, he says, pray the, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And the next verse he says, go, I am sending you out. So the workers are not actual farmers. They're uh, people who are going out to tell other people about Jesus. And the harvest, therefore, are people who don't know Christ, but who could come to know Christ through the ministry of these workers. So that's what we're looking at here. So in other words, we could translate this verse like this. Instead of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, we could translate it like uh, the potential people who could come to know Christ as disciples are plentiful, but the number of people who are actually going out and sharing their faith are few. That, that's a translation. <clears throat> so it's interesting, isn't it? How Jesus identifies the problem. Jesus says the problem is a labor shortage. That's the problem. Harvest is plentiful, so laborers are few. And I think that's interesting because that sort of goes against conventional, modern, secular, postmodern wisdom. 
the thinking today is that the problem is too many pushy Christians sharing their faith. And Jesus says, no, no, the problem is not enough people out there doing it. Uh, and I think he's probably right. I don't think he's right. How obnoxious. What a thing to say. I think he's probably right. You know, Jesus is like, thank you, Jeremy. I'm glad you agree with me. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, he's right. He's definitely right. I think today, um, you know, for every one person who's obnoxious in sharing their faith, my guess is there's 50 people who don't say a word who are Christians. I would say it's probably more like it. And of course, it just takes a few obnoxious ones to set a stereotype, but I think that most of us are silent. I, I know that's the camp I fall in. I find myself being a very covert Christian sometimes. In fact, so covert that no one really has any idea whatsoever that I actually am a Christian. Even a pastor, I just I know how to cloak myself in the culture and fit in. So uh, this is a challenge. Jesus says the problem is a labor shortage, and I think that would be shocking to postmodern sensibilities. Like, wow, Jesus said that. But I think there's also something here that might be shocking to evangelical Christian thinking. As I thought about it, just as the phrase "the workers are few" may shock a postmodern secular person, I think the phrase "the harvest is plentiful." might shock evangelical Christians. Because do we really look out at our culture and say, wow, look at the opportunity to speak the love of Christ, to share the gospel, to tell the good news? Is that really how we look at our culture? I mean, my experience in evangelical circles is that often we kind of look out at the culture and we see the problems and we retreat into a circle of the wagons, climb in the bunker hide ourselves kind of mindset. You know, it's like, oh no, it's falling apart. Uh, you know, everything's under attack, so we need to, we need to make Christian music, and we need to make a Christian TV channel and Christian video games so we can sort of isolate ourselves in a Christian bubble where we have no contact with the sinful culture out there as if that was possible. <laughs> and, and, and then we're going to hide sort of like modern Amish people. We're going to go into our own little evangelical subculture bubble. Uh, and I think that we have this kind of retreating mindset sometimes. People say, the church is under attack. Traditional moral values are under attack. The family is under attack. Uh, America's Christian heritage is under attack. Oh, no. And, you know, is it under attack? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there's been a spiritual war going on since the Garden of Eden. I mean, you know, what else is new? <laughs> So, yeah, there's always a spiritual war. The question is, what do we do with it? What's our attitude? Is it, you know, cover ourselves underneath the emergency blanket and sort of hide? Or is it like Christ says, to look out and say, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus looks out at the same unbelieving world, and where we say run and hide and duck, he's saying, the harvest is plentiful. Let's go, guys. The opportunities abound around us. This is what Jesus says about the spiritual war. Look at Luke chapter 10. Verse 17. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Just a few verses later. We just read it. It's a great verse. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in Your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given You authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. I'm going to tell you what, some of you sorry, long-faced Christians need to take that verse and put it on your fridge. <laughs> some of us are so down about things, like, oh no, 
Everything's falling apart. The culture's going wrong. Oh, what are we going to do? And, and we're so wringing our hands as if, as if the gates of hell are going to prevail against us. But Christ says, look, just proclaim the Gospel and Satan will fall from heaven. And so we need to have Christ's mindset toward the culture. That is, the fields are white for the harvest. To see the world around us as an opportunity, not as uh, a threat that's going to destroy us. It's an opportunity to proclaim Christ. That's how it's always been. Christ is king. Do we really believe it or not? Do I really believe it or not? So today, when you have to go out to your Mother's Day luncheon with all those people, and you know who they are, and you're one of the only Christians, and it's like, oh, do I have to do this again? How long is the luncheon going to last? And hey, the harvest is plentiful. That's how you have to view your family. The harvest is plentiful. And when you're there in your, your house and the family next door, you know, has a huge, really nasty divorce that really sends ripples throughout the whole neighborhood, and over on this side of you, a new family moves in, but it's a lesbian couple and they have an adopted kid. And you're like, wow, what's happening to my neighborhood? I'll tell you what's happening. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. That Christ can do anything. And he, he puts us in these places. When we watch the news and see the terrible things happening around the world, we've got to say the harvest is plentiful. Look at the harvest in Iraq. Someone needs to go there that's plentiful. We go, what? That's what Jesus says. It's plentiful. The wheat just needs to be harvested. Afghanistan's a big cranberry bog with cranberries that need to be harvested. Someone's got to flood Afghanistan and then beat the cranberries off and then bring them in and harvest them. It's plentiful. And I just think that sometimes that attitude is just not found in my own heart as I look at the world around me. And instead of being hiding in, in a bunker, we need to have this bold heart that Christ had. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is lack of laborers. The laborers are few. So the question is, what do we do to solve the problem? What do you do if you're a worker in you know, harvesting apples or corn or something and you look out at the field and all the fruit that needs to be harvested and there's just five of you there and there's all these acres and acres and the five of you say, what are we going to do? There's no way we can harvest this in time before the frost hits. And so what do you do? Well, you go to the boss and you say, look, uh, sir, we don't have enough workers. You've got to hire some people. I don't care if they're skilled or not. You've just got to get some bodies out there to help bring in the crop. And that's what you do in harvest times. Typically, in most harvests, you have a limited opportunity to bring the crop in before it goes rotten or the frost sets in or whatever. And so you just hire all kinds of people. Anyone who's able-bodied, just get them out there harvesting. It's a great time when people come together in agrarian cultures. And so that's the idea here. We have to ask the Lord of the harvest for more workers. That's the solution. That's the solution. So, the answer to evangelism and missions, the secret behind it, the power behind it, is prayer. We have to pray. It moves forward on prayer. God's kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. Salvation is a supernatural thing. You know, no one ever became a Christian because they were intellectually arm-twisted and argued into the kingdom of God. That's not how people become Christians. It's not because someone persuades them into becoming a Christian. The only reason anyone's ever become a Christian, the only reason I ever became a Christian, or you did, is because God supernaturally opened a person's heart. The Bible calls this being born again, having a new birth, having a new nature, becoming a new creation. There's lots of different images used in the Bible. But the idea is the same, that God has to open my heart up 
rescue my heart from its sinful inclinations. And when God does that, I'm now free to believe in Jesus. So that can only happen by God's power. You can't do that with some church program or some argument. That's got to happen through God working in someone's heart. And that's why we need to pray. That's why all evangelism, missions, outreach, gospel proclamation must be bathed and move on prayer. Otherwise, it will be ineffective and will be simply man-made, generated kind of stuff that won't last. It has to go on God's power. And I think this emphasis on prayer is also important because I think it protects us from becoming belligerent, nasty (laughs) evangelists who beat people up with the gospel. Because, you know, I can't convert anybody. God does that. All I can do is love people and tell them the truth about Christ in a consistent, clear way and let God do the work. That's my job. And that kind of, I don't know, for me it just sort of takes the pressure off. It makes me feel like I don't have to come up with the argument or the saying or the you know, sort of verbal judo that's going to flip someone over. I just know that it's God who has to do the work. And so it helps us to be loving and kind to know that God does the work. Our job is simply to be faithful in telling the message of Christ. So we need to pray for workers. The problem, the good thing is the opportunity is great. The problem is labor shortage. Answer, go talk to the boss. Okay, you've got to hire some more guys. We need some more people out here harvesting. And let me suggest four ways, uh, as we apply this to our lives, four ways in which we can be praying from our workers. Four uh, dimensions or, or ways to think about it. And I would say the first way is we have to be willing to be laborers ourselves. I think you have to start there. Jesus sent out the 72. He told them to pray. But the point is he's asking the 72 who are going out to pray. So if we're going to pray for God to raise up more workers, I think we have to be willing to be a worker ourselves. We have to be willing to be harvesters. We have to see ourselves as God's people here on our mission field. I mean, do you see yourself as God's man in Hull or Weymouth or wherever you live? Do you see yourself as God's woman in Abington or Hanover? Do you see yourself as the one who's called to that area? Uh, do I see myself as a person who's come, called to take the gospel all over the South Shore? And I think it's a mindset I have to get into so that when I go to the gym, when I'm standing in line at Stop and Shop, when I'm getting my you know, breaks done, or you know, wherever we are, find ourselves in life, we just say, God, if you want to use me today, I'm here. You know, use my life. And so we're always kind of open to that. That's the way God's kingdom moves forward. I was uh, asked some, by someone recently, they said, hey, I heard South Shore Baptist Church is... You know, God is blessing it. And they said, what are you doing? What, what's your strategy for reaching out? What's your program that you're using? And I was like, uh, we don't have an evangelism program. <laughs> and they're like, what? I said, well, actually, we do have an evangelism program. It's just the people. That's my plan. That's my big strategy for reaching the South Shore. It's you. Just you being salt and light. I mean, I don't know what to do besides that. I mean, you can have events. You can, certainly, we need to train you to do that better. But, but beyond that, if we as a body aren't going out and they're doing it, I mean, no slick program or fancy event or you know, marketing ploy is going to reach people for Christ if we're not the ones who are doing it. I think that's God's plan for evangelism is each of us being true about who we are in Christ and sharing our faith. So we need to be raised up as workers. We need to be willing to be those who go. I read a, uh, a missionary story this week. It just blew me away. It was a, about a lady named Mary Reed. Mary Reed was a missionary to India in the mid-1800s. And while she was there, she visited a leper colony. She was touched 
just by the plight of these people, the way they were socially ostracized. Her heart just broke for them. She began praying, Lord, do something to reach these lepers in this leper colony. And uh, so she kept ministering in India, and, and she kind of got sick, and they couldn't figure out what it was. I think she had some numbness, and she had a spot on her face that wasn't healing, some like, you know, sort of uh, wound or something. So she went to the field doctor. He didn't know. They took him back, back home. They examined her, and eventually they discovered she had contracted leprosy. And the doctor told her, and apparently as the story goes, as, as I've read the story, she fell on her knees and praised God, saying, Thank you, God. Now I know I am called to go reach those lepers. And she went back to the leper colony. She eventually became the leader of the leper colony, and she proclaimed Christ, and they set up a church there. And uh, at the age of 84, she finished her work. You know, that's being open to go. And I think we have to have that mindset of saying, God, send up workers, starting with me, wherever it is. And maybe it's something exotic like that, or maybe it's just you know, the guy who bags my stuff at Stop and Shop who everyone just seems to not even look at. Maybe that's the person who needs the love of Christ today. We need to pray for ourselves. Secondly, we need to pray for our families. Pray for our families. Uh, and here I'm specifically thinking that we need to be willing to ask God, we need to ask God to use our family members for his glory and for his gospel. We need to offer them up to God and say, God, my marriage is ultimately, if you're married, my marriage is for the advancement of your kingdom. My children are yours. You may use them, God, to, for your glory and for your kingdom. Uh, we need to see our families and our children and our grandchildren as vehicles through whom God can proclaim uh, his work. You know, we talk about, yeah, we need more workers out there, just not my kids. I mean, I want my kids to be safe and sound here, but, you know, we definitely need workers over there in those places over there, and God will raise up some people to do that, just not my family, just not me, not my children, not my grandchildren, not my great-grandchildren. Oh, we need to be praying that God would even use our kids. Um, we have to be aware of making an idol out of the family. We have to be aware of making an idol out of marriage. I think sometimes uh, we can talk so much about protecting marriage and protecting family in the church, and we should. But to what end? Simply to have safe families? <laughs> no, it's so that our children can be raised up for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we, we need to be willing to raise up our kids. I need to be thinking, when I think about the problems in Iraq, I need to be thinking about my children and saying, God, is my child the solution to the problem in Iraq by bringing the gospel? I need to connect Afghanistan to their grandchildren and say, God, maybe this child is going to go there. Do we pray that way as parents? I was really challenged by this thought. Someone challenged me with it this week. You know, we have infant dedications here in our church and we'll have little babies up here and we'll dedicate them to the Lord. And it's a wonderful time. It's a sweet time. It's touching. But, you know, are we really dedicating them to the Lord? <laughs> are we really saying, all right, God, this child is yours the way Hannah said of Samuel, this child is yours and I dedicate him to your service. Or is, or is a baby dedication just kind of a sort of a superstitious, nostalgic sort of moment where we hope that maybe some supernatural you know, Teflon will cover our child so they won't get sick or something. You know, I, I don't know. Some people have superstitious things. We'll do this little ritual and that will help my kid. I don't know what. Instead of saying, God, it's yours. We dedicate this child to you. And so we need to be willing to Pray for ourselves to be workers. We need to be willing to pray for our families and our marriages to be used, to be raised up for work for the kingdom of God. I think the third thing we need to pray for is the South Shore of Boston. It's another area. Uh, we need to pray for the people around us. Some of you are in Bible studies. 
Pray for your Bible study to grow. The people in your Bible study might go out. You know, not that you're trying to kick people out of your Bible study. Well, maybe some of them you'd like to. But most, for the most part, they're cool people. You like them. But, you know, just for the sake of the gospel, do you pray that, you know, God, raise this guy over here in the corner who doesn't ever seem to say much and doesn't pray, pray out loud and everyone's praying. He just seems like, you know, he's just there. Lord, I know you can work in his life and turn him into a leader for Christ and send him out. I know you can do that. So start praying for the least likely people. Uh, we need to be praying for new churches to be planted on the South Shore of Boston. Churches where the Bible is taught faithfully, where the Gospel is preached, where Jesus is proclaimed. Uh, and that means we need to be praying for God to raise up pastors from our midst. I, I have this prayer that God would touch two or three young men in our church. Maybe guys who are in elementary school now or junior high or high school and God would speak into the hearts of these young men and they would be called to preach the Gospel. Wouldn't it be cool if our church could train up two or three Timothys and then we could send them out to plant churches, send some people out from our church who are like, I remember this young man when he was this big in the nursery, but now when he preaches the Word of God, my heart is pierced because God's anointing has come upon him to preach the Gospel. So we need to pray that God would raise up men. Even, even men who seem like, oh, that, that kid over there, boy, he's lost. He's so far from God. Nothing will ever happen with him. Those are the ones God loves to use. <laughs> the guys who were like, oh, yeah, he's written off. No, no, maybe God is going to touch the far out one and that person is going to be called to lead the people of God, not sit in the back, you know, like Saul in the back with the baggage. God's going to call him forward to be a leader of God's people. So we need to pray for churches and pastors and preachers. So we need to pray for ourselves, our families, the South Shore, and then we need to pray for the world, of course. God's heart is for the world. And I find this very challenging. I don't know about you. I, uh, I find it hard to stay focused on God's kingdom globally. My, my focus so much on things in the here and now. Just life is so pressing. There are so many demands. Uh, even last night, I was telling some of you, my, uh, my son last night, we were running around the house playing and uh, okay, actually, I was chasing him. I was being a gorilla, and he was running. And, uh, and he tried to dodge me, and he fell back and hit his head on the, uh, the fish tank. Had a nice gash. So it's like, oh, I'm going to go to the emergency room, and I haven't rehearsed my sermon yet. So, you know, that's just life. That's how life is. Kids are getting their heads cut open. It's amazing any of the males of our species have lived to age 16. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and kids are getting heads cut open, and work is pressing, and we've got to travel for business, and there's soccer games, and then there's aging parents who have health needs, and we're helping out with them. There's just so much stuff going on. And just to focus on anything beyond ourselves is so difficult. So this idea of praying for the world, I mean, I just find it overwhelming. Maybe some of you have this down. I find it overwhelming. And I, I struggle to keep my eyes focused where God's eyes are focused, His glory filling the whole earth. Uh, one of the tools that, that I'd just like to commend to you is a little tool you can find out in the foyer. This is something our missions committee put together this year. And uh, it's free. You can go out and get one. It's a calendar. I mean, it seems like not rocket science. Just do a calendar and each month put different missionaries we support as a church on there. But this is a great idea. I, I don't know why we didn't think of this before. I, I think this is wonderful. I think we should use it more in our church. We use it in my family. Um, when I do my devotions with my kids at night, when I'm home that evening, if I'm not offered a meeting or something, uh, we'll read the Bible, and then we'll pray together. And one of the things we do is we pray for our missionaries. And so I'll say, all right, go to the calendar. Who's our missionaries this month? And this month we're praying for Ken and Lucy Davis in northern Brazil. 
We're praying for Matt and Grace Dorn here on the South Shore, and we're praying for Mark and Lois Shaw, who are in, East Ken- in Kenya, in East Africa. And so we just pray for those people. And my kids are learning to pray for who our missionaries are, and we're learning more about their needs. And the kids go to the map, and they're like, oh, you know, where's Kenya? And so we find it on the map, and we talk about Kenya. And, what's, you, you know, sometimes we get the encyclopedia and read about the country. You know, it's kind of cool. And I think this is something we could use more uh, in your Bible study groups when you meet. All right, who's the missionaries this month? Let's pray for them. Or if you're meeting with the finance committee or the stewardship committee or whoever in the church, we just bust it out. It takes two minutes. And uh, look at the missionaries and pray for them. And just a way of our church constantly lifting our eyes off of our problems and looking at God's kingdom work that he is doing, which I just find so challenging to keep in front of myself. Because that's what he's commanded us to do. The problem is there's not enough workers. Plentiful harvest, not enough workers. The solution is prayer. God would raise up workers. And you know, we can pray confidently. We can pray boldly. We can pray with courage and zeal. Because we are praying to the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. He is the Lord. This is His harvest field. Jesus is not out of control trying to fix the world. He is sovereign. His purposes are moving forward. And so we can go to Him confidently and say, You are the Lord of the harvest. Send out the workers. In fact, not only is He sovereign over it, He is the harvester. He is the ultimate missionary. Jesus reveals that God has a missionary-shaped heart. Because God, in His holy heaven, has been separated us because of our sin. Even though He made us, we've gone our own way. And I'll tell you what, all of the human race deserves judgment and damnation because of our sin. Nobody here deserves heaven. Nobody here is good enough for God. But in His mercy, rather than leaving us in our judgment, He sent Jesus as the great missionary. And talk about a cross-cultural journey. From heaven to earth. (laughs) from the glory of God to the foulness of our sinful humanity. And He came on that long journey to seek and save that which is lost. That which deserved judgment and hell and perdition forever. He sent Jesus to save me. And Christ found me. He is the great missionary. He is the great harvester. So, you know, when we are talking about harvesting, it's not really us who does the work. We just proclaim the Gospel. Jesus is the one harvesting. And I just want to tell you today, I don't know where you're at with God, what you think of all this. We've been talking a lot about evangelism. But maybe you're on the other side of the equation and you're like, you know what, I am so far from God. If God's way over there, I'm way over there. And I've done so many things in my life. In fact, it's pretty amazing I'm actually sitting in a church and the ceiling didn't fall in on me. And I, I am not a believing person. I have my doubts. I have my issues. I'm the guy who's so far away. I just want to tell you that even in this moment, if you would open your heart up to Jesus and confess your sin and ask Him to save you. Even now, He will save you. Because He's still harvesting. He's still harvesting. He's still bringing people into His fold. Maybe you're the guy who's so far away that everyone would just have a coronary if you became a Christian. But you're the one God wants to use to lead His people. Maybe He wants to do that in your life. So you've got to say, Jesus, come into my life and save me and make me a new person. And so we pray with confidence. And we pray. That's how it gets done. It's an overwhelming task. There are 2.5 billion people on planet Earth today who have no access to the Gospel. 
not just haven't heard the gospel. There are 2.5 billion people who cannot go somewhere in their culture and find the gospel. That's just overwhelming. How, what are we going to do? And I think the answer is we start by praying. And that's how God works. He works when His saints pray. When His saints come to Him and say, God, we cannot do this. It's overwhelming. Please move in our midst and do something great. You know, that's how the modern missions movement started, by the way. Uh, for those of you, just a little sort of missions history. Around 1800 was sort of the beginning of what we call the modern missions movement. All the missions agencies we have today and missions programs, they weren't always there. They started about 200 years ago. And they started in 1806, was the year that most people trace it back to. There was a, a college, Williams College, and there were five students there who were theology students, and they were talking about uh, missions and how do we do missions. You know, and like I said, missions wasn't really done the way we do it now. And so they're, they're saying, how do we get the gospel out there? And so they're debating this, talking about it. And then as they were talking, it was in the summer, uh, a rainstorm sort of came out of nowhere. And it was very sudden and abrupt. And so they ran for cover as the storm came in. And they found shelter under a haystack. And they stood there under the haystack as the rain was beating in. And these five men uh, started to pray. And that moment was so unique and so powerful that it's sort of become known in missions history as the, the great haystack prayer meeting. Because out of that prayer meeting, they sensed God touching their lives and calling them to His service. And out of that started coming missions agencies and people being sent around the world. Out of that one prayer meeting, that's how it started. The modern missions movement. And it came out of these five men and God has done tremendous things so that all this stuff we do today that we just take for granted, that we have missions agencies, we send it out, started because of those five guys asking the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. So when I ask you to pray in your small groups and your stewardship committee meetings and your homes with your families, I'm not asking you just to tilt at windmills and do something that feels kind of nice. I'm asking you to get the ball moving through your prayers. Because that is how God will accomplish His work. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship You because You are the Lord of the harvest. I thank You, Jesus, that You saved me. I'm the last person in this room who should be preaching. And yet, Lord, You have rescued me and cleansed my soul. Lord, thank You that You've rescued this whole room full of people. Many of them here have come to know You, Jesus. Jesus, I thank You that Your salvation is available to anyone here who will turn to You, no matter who they are, where they've been, or what their past junk is, that You can save and seek even the lost of the lost, the worst of the worst. Lord Jesus, we do pray that You would raise up more workers. Lord, we offer ourselves to You. We are Your evangelism program. Lord, use us. God, we raise up our families. We offer up to You our marriages, our children, our grandchildren. Lord, we offer up to You uh, uh, all of our extended family. God, raise up workers from among our family. Lord, we pray for the South Shore of Boston that You would raise up new Bible studies, that You would raise up new churches. God, put Your hand upon two or three young men, even in our church, men who would be called out by You to serve You. Maybe old men, God. <laughs> who knows? Somebody, God. Raise them up to be a preacher of the Gospel. Lord, we pray for the world, that you would continue to reach out to all the, those peoples who do not have the light of the gospel. Lord, we think of uh, the people of Bangladesh, 95 million Bengali people who have no access to Christ. Lord Jesus, raise up workers in Bangladesh, God in Iran, and in North Korea, perhaps the most closed uh, 
persecuting nation on earth. Lord, raise up workers for North Korea, we pray. May there be a mighty revival from the inside. We pray that North Korea's uh, totalitarianism would break down from the inside out as the gospel erupts. So, Lord God, do what governments and programs and the UN can't do. Change the world through the gospel and win a people for yourself from every nation. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen.